Chapter 19 Eviction into Reality The opening quote for this chapter is from Buddha. Love yourself and be awake today, tomorrow, always. First, establish yourself in the way, then teach others, and so defeat sorrow. To straighten the crooked, you must first do a harder thing. Straighten yourself. You are the only master. Who else? Subdue yourself and discover your master. Returning home from the Denver International Airport, we find an eviction notice taped to our front door. After 18 months, the owners of our rental wanted to break our lease so that they could sell their house. So they used our recent late payments to have us thrown out. We try to reason with them but are unsuccessful and find we have less than a week in which to find another place to live, pack our belongings, and pay for a move that we cannot afford. In the face of this news, I am only slightly phased. After a discussion about our options, we decide to call a friend who had repeatedly told us since our difficulties from 9-11 that we would never be homeless. True to his word, he tells us he will make ready the in-law quarters at his house. We start packing, my wife doing most of the work because she's really good at it, and because I'm still fragile from what had transpired in California. In fact, I'm so sensitive that I need to sleep alone because the mere presence of another's biofield would keep me awake. One night, while sleeping in our meditation room, I have this sudden urge to sit up, open my eyes, and look out into the room. I don't know what I'm looking for or what prompted me to sit up, but immediately discover that I can't locate myself. It's not that I was not there in the room, but the point of view that I always associated with myself was no longer present. All there was was this infinite field of that, where before there had always been a me and the world, now there was only this huge, unending, infinite, awesome, immense expansion in all directions, up, down, sideways, and that was all there was. Everything that formerly made up the parts of my world were revealed as being only that, leaving no place for me apart from it. I simply did not exist. With this experience, it became apparent to me that a defaulted perceptual program had been running inside my experience of life that served to fragment my perception of that by providing it with labels like me, you, dog, cat, wall, wife, food, sky, tree. That program, which we call the ego, had caused me to forget that everything was connected. For some reason, it had gone on the blink. My ego had malfunctioned, making no discernment or distinction possible. Now, only the one existed. I did not exist. In fact, it was now clear that I had only ever been a point of view looking into that. Truthfully, none of what I have just told you now was apparent while inside the experience, as my entire reality was only the experience of the one without a second, and there was no room for anything but itself. But as the experience began to fade at that junction between not being and becoming once more, the only words that came to describe that were awesome, terrible, powerful, infinite, and fearsome. Yet not one of these words adequately conveyed the content of that moment. Such words were incapable of containing any measure of truth of that. And it wasn't that there was anything to be afraid of, as my use of the word fearsome might seem to imply. It's just that in comparison to everything I had ever experienced in my life, Nothing had prepared me for the total raw power and immensity of all life. The next day, 
I share my experience with my wife and children as we continue to pack up the house, but for some reason I tire easily and need to take many breaks. My wife, being on a schedule and knowing how much work remains to be done, implores me to keep going. I keep lifting and moving boxes until while pulling a dolly load of boxes up the stairs, my back goes out on the left side, sending a spasm of pain through my body that nearly makes me pass out. In a flash, the bliss, silence, and equanimity of the previous week evaporates. It's all I can do to crawl to my room to find some way out of the pain. If it wasn't for the fact that our daughter's future husband had been staying with us, we could not have completed the move. From that moment, I was completely out of commission. Since we had no money to pay the movers, we sell one of our cars for cash. As the movers deliver our belongings to our friend's garage, it's embarrassing to see how much junk we'd accumulated over 30 years of marriage. Weakened and feeling vulnerable from my injury, I once again feel ashamed for the situation I am in. Nevertheless, we move in and make ourselves at home as my back begins to heal. A few weeks later, our host, knowing how much I enjoyed building things, announces that he's going to lay a 2,700-square-foot flagstone patio and asked if I would like to help. Boy, would I. Gingerly at first, I begin to work with the stones, so as my back gets better, I'm able to move, cut, and position by myself stones weighing over 200 pounds. I work whenever I can, often until dusk. It was very rewarding to see the mosaic of reddish stones take the form of their patio under the Colorado summer sun. I am not recruiting at this time, but am beginning to explore coaching engagements with some of my old clients, but mostly I'm cutting and placing stone, getting a tan, and building muscle. My back, however, continues to feel stiff. One day towards the end of the project, I'm working alone in the afternoon, motivated by the prospect of finishing. I have just cut a very heavy stone to fit under the stairwell that came down from the deck. Having already positioned the sand underneath it, I attempt to maneuver it by tipping it and rotating it to the left. I lift and rotate to the left when I hear something pop in my back on the right side. Immediately, I drop the stone and go to my room to rest. Now my back is really stiff. But since I've never had back problems and am not used to being injured, I assume that with rest all will be well. Besides, the patio is mostly done, and I can stand back, albeit a little stiffly, and point out the beautiful contribution I've made to their backyard, a practice I take great joy in doing even to this day. During my time of convalescent, a longtime friend who lives in New Jersey starts calling. We talk quite a bit about the virtues of integral coaching, after which she asks if I would be willing to come and coach her if she paid my expenses. I agree, thinking it would be the first time I have been to the Atlantic Ocean since I left Manhattan at the age of five. We make arrangements, and the following week she picks me up at the airport and drives me to her house, which is only one block from the ocean. We talk, walk, and eat meals together as I design a coaching development plan for the changes she wants to make in her life. On the third day of my visit, I wake up with the idea to visit my birth father's gravesite in New York. Why I thought of this is beyond me, because I had neither seen nor heard from him since I was five, and only learned of his death when I was nine. Despite my lack of connection to the man who'd fathered me, for some reason I thought there might be some unfinished business. My friend makes a few calls, locates the address of the plot where he's buried, and drives me there. When we arrive, my back has stiffened greatly from the car ride. Painfully, I exit the car to find the gravesite. The plaque marking his resting place is very plain. It's just a brass plate engraved with the names of my grandmother, grandfather, and my father. My friend takes a walk as I, for the first time in my life, am confronted with the reality 
that my father really did exist, even though I had no memory of him. He was no longer just a name or a face in photographs. Here were his remains, not more than three feet from where I stood. I close my eyes and start to speak to him in my mind. Hi, Dad. Sorry it took me so long to get here to say goodbye. I really don't know what to tell you now except to say that I'm sorry for what happened, that you never saw your sons again, and that you died brokenhearted. But I want to thank you for the part you played in bringing me into the world, and for the sacrifice you made knowing on some level that you would never see me past the age of five. So please forgive me, know that I am grateful for all you have done, and that in my own way I love and respect you and wish you well. A few days later, my friend delivers me to the airport for my flight home to Colorado. Sitting in the plane, I am increasingly uncomfortable as the pain in my back intensifies to such a degree that by the time I go to bed that night, my body is jerking uncontrollably from the spasms of pain that are flashing across my back and down my right thigh, a pain beyond anything I'd ever known was possible. From October 2nd until the 10th of November, I am consumed by unrelenting pain that will not allow me to sleep for 40 days and nights. I cannot stand upright, sit, or lie on my back. I can only lie on my left side in a fetal position as the pain courses through my body. Concerned about the possibility of a damaged disc or vertebrae, I visit a doctor who was referred to me because of his holistic approach. He tells me that I have not damaged my disc or vertebrae, but says I have severely sprained my sacrum at the fourth and fifth vertebrae on the right and left side. He tells me there is a tremendous amount of peripheral tension and inflammation and suggests acupuncture as a means to redirect the congested energy. I take his advice but find the needles aggravate my condition. So he prescribes muscle relaxants and Vicodin. I have never taken any drugs like this before, but I am desperate for relief and a chance to sleep. So I take what he has offered. Interestingly, I learn that this doctor is the brother of the man that taught me transcendental meditation at the Berkeley Center on November 17, 1971. Still not feeling any relief, I begin to panic from the increasing tempo of pain, which alternately burns sharply and aches deeply, and because every morning and evening between 3 and 6, the pain amplifies unbearably. Over the next few days, my wife and I speak with other health providers who are also unable to find a solution. Our host, who'd had a bout with insomnia at one time, offers me some high-tech sleeping pills, but all they do is make me comically incoherent without helping me sleep. Next, we call India to speak with the Swami that designed my spiritual practice. He tells me that the energy released in my experience of that was too much for my system, which resulted in the weakening of my back between the fourth and fifth vertebrae. He prescribes new practices to redirect the energy, but nothing seems to help except for lying on my left side in a tub of warm water. Only then is the pain even tolerable. So each night while the rest of the house sleeps, I hobble repeatedly to the bathroom to draw my bath. Despite my efforts to find relief, many were the mornings when my wife would come into my room only to find such fear in my eyes that I reminded her of the caged animals. Caught in the grips of an agony that is not abating, many nights I cry, plead, whimper, and beg God to help me. Nothing. I search through books, seeking clues to shed light on the mess I'm in, believing somehow that I was at fault and was now being punished. Constantly I search for answers, and when able to find them, I would sit stoically in an attempt to transcend the pain and get some rest. But I am unsuccessful in this too, and now frantic, desperately look for an escape because that was all I knew how to do, 
to run away, which was the pattern that had driven me to spirituality at a young age. Finally, I returned to the MD for more powerful painkillers, but find that they, Percocet, don't put a dent in the pain. Now I am at the end of my rope with nowhere to go and no options left. All I can do is endure the pain moment by moment as my mind considers what will happen if the pain does not release me. Ironically, but not wanting to make light of the seriousness of the situation, I had to admit that I found it interesting how my whole life I hated feeling tired, and now I could not escape it. Along with the elements of my physical injury, I continued to be awash in financial ones. I had no income and no prospects. While our host is sincere in wanting to help, he does expect us to contribute to the cost of food. But we had little money and no income. I am without a home and have nowhere to go, hugely in debt and unable to work. As a strong-willed, once-confident, well-meaning, and possibly intelligent person, this inexplicable state of affairs grinds my ego to dust. For my entire life, I had done everything to promote fairness, be truthful, attend to my mental, physical, and spiritual health with sound and consistent practices, and yet I've been reduced to a mere shell of a man. Ashamed, weak, tired, constantly afraid, humiliated, and alienated, I am left to my own devices to make sense or insanity of what is going on. In the midst of this crisis, our host makes a statement that has remained with me ever since. Choose love, not fear. From hearing that statement, some feeble recognition of choice begins to shift my perspective of the situation. I begin to remember how many others I have known who suffered back pain and other long-term injuries. Now being one of them, I find myself filled with profound respect and compassion for those who suffered so. I wonder how I can help others who also suffer and begin to consider those who I'd worked with over the years, searching my feelings for a few who might allow me to help them as their coach, even though I clearly could not help myself. In the midst of it all, I start to write poetry, especially in the early morning hours when the pain is the most intense. I write horrible poetry about my life, path, wife, and predicament. I watch movies on my laptop computer and read books, soak in the tub, and do my best to stay present in the midst of this event, which offers no indication that it will ever change. Constantly, I ask myself, what am I feeling? What do I know is true? What do I feel to do right now? Each time, regardless of the answer, all I can do is surrender again and again to the truth of my moment, giving in to the hopelessness of my situation, my hopes of escaping the pain, getting better, or understanding anything. All I am capable of doing is being with what is until the morning of the 40th day. It was around 3 a.m., when the room was dark, the house silent, and the pain was at its peak. But for some reason, I'm no longer fighting the pain, but thanking it. Curiously, I find myself in a delirious state of ecstatic gratitude, whispering and rhyming prayers to Mother Divine. Having never done anything like this before, I do not know how I got there, what prompted it, or how long it had been going on. But somehow, the line between pain and bliss began to blur as both sensations flashed through my body. In the midst of my ecstatic reverie and in the faint recesses of my mind, there lingered the thought that my withered right thigh would never recover, that I was a fraud, a failure, and homeless. Without hesitation or resistance, I accept unconditionally the content of that moment as true. Suddenly, I hear a loud pop coming from somewhere in my room. 
Distracted from my prayers of gratitude, I realize the sound has come from my sacrum. And as my attention senses into that part of my body, it is met by the most powerful wave of vibration imaginable. A force is erupting from the very core of my being, like a tidal wave of pure, unrelenting power. It's so intense, in fact, that it makes me nauseous beyond belief, as if everything inside of me is about to be put outside. But it's in that moment of surrender that the frequency of the pain that had racked my body for weeks began to shift. Later that day, I find the first few moments of sleep in 40 days and nights. I continue, however, to be in a great deal of pain. My right thigh is extremely tender to the touch, having withered so much that the muscles feel like a bag of jello hanging from the bone. There is absolutely zero muscle tone. Instead, the tissue hangs there shapeless from the fiery pain that ran down the IT band across the top of my thigh, along the sciatica and base of my pelvis, which made even the slightest touch unbearable. For months afterwards, I felt as if I'd been kicked in the groin, but at least I could get some sleep with a pillow between my knees for support. I still could not stand, sit, or walk, and the muscles in my lower back, buttocks, and thigh burned and twitched continuously. But now the painkillers could work, and I could get some rest. I ran out of pain pills and money long before my brother called to see how I was doing. He had been keeping tabs on me through his conversation with our mother, but now decides to check on me himself. Not being one for awkward encounters or small talk, he's calling today because there's something on his mind. He asks how the pain is, what the weather is like, what plans we have for Thanksgiving, and how the money situation is. I tell him the money is gone. Without hesitation, he says that Christmas has come early, and he would like to know if he could send me $3,500. Given the ordeal I have been going through, I do my best to hold myself together. Despite my best effort, I am unable to speak coherently and fall apart in my attempt to thank my big brother for his generosity. Still not comfortable in emotional situations, he quickly moves on to the logistics of getting the money to me, so that by the next day the funds are in our account. A few days later, the woman I had coached in New Jersey is on the phone, telling me she's doing better, and asks how things are with me. I tell her about the ordeal I have just gone through, after which she offers to send money to help out. Then she invites me back to New Jersey for an extended stay at her beach house to meet her boyfriend who was also interested in being coached. In January of 2005, I travel back to New Jersey to meet with the boyfriend and explain the principles of integral coaching. We come to a working agreement and I spend the next couple of days near the Jersey Shore as the sounds and smells of that place remind me of time spent at Jones Beach and Far Rockaway as a child. The day before I am to return to Colorado, I awake to a burning sensation at the base of my spine. It is immediately apparent that the burning sensation is different than those associated with the muscle spasms and aches from the original injury. As I travel home, the size of the area grows until it engulfs my entire body with its intense, coarse, burning sensation. Frankly, it feels as if I am reliving the experience of being burned alive only now it has been spread out over a protracted period of time. When I get the Swami on the phone, he tells me the burning is a blessed event that will rapidly purify toxins from my system. But it's so intense, like having the worst sunburn ever into which someone is rubbing coarse gravel. The Swami prescribes another set of practices that are of little help. Meanwhile, the burning continues to grow in intensity, 
while other vibrations, pulsations, and irritations move through my body 24 hours a day. Only in sleep am I free because it's the only time I don't notice the burning. But the moment I awake and my mind begins to move, the flames leap into action to purge my unresolved mental, emotional, and physical impurities. When I am able, I continue to look for ways to be of service to others, a challenging task because I am constantly fatigued and require several long naps each day. The good news is that it no longer hurt to be tired. Instead, I just burn all the time. 